I'm glad you're here today. It's good to see you all. Let me tell you a story. Jean-Baptiste Jules Bernadotte was born in 1763. He was the son of a French government worker. As a young man, he joined the army, and um, right about the start of the French Revolution, by that point, he had risen to the rank of sergeant. Uh, Eventually, he became one of Napoleon's first marshals. But in an odd twist of history, Bernadotte found favor in the eyes of the king of Sweden, Charles XIII. You see, Sweden had fought a battle with Napoleon, and Bernadotte had treated the Swedish prisoners of war very very well. He'd he'd done right by them. They were prisoners. He he wasn't harsh. He was kind. Thank you, sir. Um, And he he really had uh, just done a, a good thing for them, Uh, especially given the horrors of war. And when the Swedish government... Sorry, I'm going to switch. Hang on here. There, help. Okay. Better? There we go. Thank you. I just... I don't know what... If I don't have my hands free, I can't speak. Um... (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I'm part Italian, but maybe. I don't know. We'll, uh... Anyway, uh, Bernadotte, had, uh, he had really uh, treated the Swedish prisoners well. And, and so the, the Swedish government did something unheard of. They actually put him in line for the throne. It was the weirdest thing ever. He was the commander of a former enemy. And so the son of a French government worker was renamed Charles John, the new crown prince of Sweden. In 1818, after the death of King Charles XIII, Bernadotte assumed the throne as King Charles XIV. Now, he was popular, but he was also a very harsh monarch. His rule was was marked by a, a fair degree of cruelty. And he reigned from 1844 until his um, death, uh, uh, excuse me, he reigned until 1844 when he was 81 years old. And it was in the process of embalming him and preparing him for burial that the, the government workers found out that he had carried a secret this whole time. You see, he had a tattoo on his chest. It was of a red cap, which was a symbol of libera- liberation, and it had the French words, mort a Roy, literally, death to all kings. (laughs) Apparently, the ink on his body had no authority over the ink in his soul. So the question that confronts us today is this, does the ink in this book have authority over the ink in our soul? It should. And I want to tell you why today. Thanks for being with us. Grateful that everybody is here together. As Brandon said, if someone is sitting in your seat, please forgive them. They didn't know. Um, We don't put your names on it. Uh, Okay. Also, I want to ask you to keep a couple families in our church family in your prayers. Uh, Please keep Bill and Larry Dodge and David and Danielle Vinup in your prayers. Uh, Diane, uh, their daughter, sister, wife and mother, respectively, uh, passed away. And then also uh, Lee and Sherry Walker are back with us today. Lee's sister uh, passed away. So can we take a second and pray for both of those families? 
God, thank you for today. We're grateful that you have brought us together in freedom and peace and safety. We acknowledge, Lord, that there are many around the world who do not enjoy that privilege this morning. And so we ask your blessing on uh, the persecuted church around the world. And Jesus, we thank you um, for the, the comfort we can give one another in times of grief. And so we just want to lift up uh, the, the Venup family and the Walker family, Lord, as they're struggling with grief today. We just ask your blessing on them uh, through this time and ask that, that, as your word says, that you would comfort them with the comfort that comes from Jesus. Uh, we acknowledge this, Lord. I pray that you would speak through me to your people today, that, that they, we could all understand that your word has authority in our lives. We ask this in your precious holy name, Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we're gonna, I'm going to have you do that, and it's going to be a while before we get there, because I want to develop something, okay? So just stick your finger in it. If you're using your Bible app, um, you, mo- you, it, you probably might want to like let your phone go back to sleep so you got juice later or something. But um, uh, we'll, we'll get there eventually, just trust me, okay? We're continuing the message series today on the doctrine of Scripture. We started last Sunday, this series called Inked. And I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do it today. I want to encourage you, if you weren't with us last Sunday, either in person or or watching online, thanks for logging in, appreciate that. Um, If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's message, please go watch it. And I say that that's not an ego thing. Every one of these is is like sequential. So last week we talked about Scripture being God-breathed, right, From, from... First uh, Timothy. And, and so what we're talking about today is the authority of Scripture. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this idea of inerrancy. And this is one of those, well, if God said it, it has to be true, right? There, every one of these is somewhat sequential. So if you didn't listen to last week's, uh, at some point this week, go back and check that out so that you're kind of in the flow with us, okay? Today's truth follows hard on the heels of last week's. If God breathed the words of Scripture, there can't be any errors in it, Right? Right, thank you, yeah, correct, that's, that's the right answer. Um, you know, I mean, if there's no error in it, then it has authority over us, right? Right. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the big idea this morning. God's Word has the authority to overwrite any mistaken words in your story because there aren't any in His. What we're talking about today is the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is without error, all right, now let me, let me define that, and I just want to, I found this, I want to share this idea with you, it's really good. Um, Sinclair B. Ferguson and J.I. Packer were the general editors of the New Dictionary of Theology, and this is how they defined it. I, just, I thought this was so excellent, I want to share it. They write, inerrancy signifies the total truthfulness of a source of information that contains no mistakes. The word is 19th century, but the belief it expresses is as old as Christianity, Clement of Rome held that in, quote, the Holy Scriptures, which are given through the Holy Spirit, nothing iniquitous, sinful, or falsified is written, end quote. And Augustine declared, I believe most firmly that none of these, and he mean, by that he means canonical authors, so what we now know as our Bible, has erred in any respect of writing, end quote. What they're saying in this doctrine of inerrancy is that there are no mistakes in this book. There's no errors. And that gives it authority. So why are there no mistakes? Why do we consider the Bible to be without error? Let me give you two reasons. Here's the first one. Number one, it's God's word. 
It's God's word. I heard a story about a woman named Susan Wright from Florida. She told about a time she was sitting in church with her first grade daughter sitting next to her. And they're there in morning worship, and, and her daughter is looking down. Susan has an open Bible in her lap. And her daughter's looking at this very intently, looking at her mom's Bible. And she leans over to her mom and she said, Mom, did God really write that? And her mom's heart just swelled with motherly pride. She's so proud. First grade daughter, taking an interest in the serious things of our faith. This idea that God, this is God breathed. God said this. She's so proud. And she leans over with a smile on her face and she said, yes, honey, yes, he did. And her daughter's just staring at the Bible and her eyes got real big and she said, wow, he's got great penmanship. (laughs) No, the reason this, this book has authority is that it's God's word. And I know on a Sunday morning in church, that sounds like a whoop duh kind of assertion. But there's a very important truth that derives from this. God doesn't make mistakes. Right? I mean, it kind of comes with the job of being God. It's in the job description. Can't make mistakes. And so, (laughs) if he doesn't make mistakes, then everything he says is going to be right. No errors, no mistakes. I want to remind you of something I've shared with you before, but, but it's, it's incredibly important. In his book, Scripture and the Authority of God, N.T. Wright wrote, noted that the authority of Scripture is shorthand for God's authority exercised through Scripture. He goes on to explain what he means by that. He gives three really important reasons why this is true and this shaped the way we look at the world. First of all, he says, the God we worship is a God who speaks. Our God is a God who speaks to us using human language, words that we can understand. He wants to be understood. He's not some mysterious force, thank you, George Lucas. He wants to be understood. He wants you to know him, all right? Secondly, God's transforming grace is given to us in part by enabling us to think in new ways, to think about his word, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. God wants you to use your mind. He wants you to use your mind to understand his word that he has communicated to you in human language. And number three, the God we worship is a God whose power conquers the world through the story of Jesus' resurrection. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday morning after he died on the cross in your place for your sins, that same power is available to you when you read his word to help you understand it and to help you obey it. In other words, Jesus' story is part of the authoritative framework of Scripture. Your understanding of your story needs to be in alignment with this story. Or you might be twisting this story to mean what you want it to mean. To say what you want it to say. And therefore doing damage to its legitimate authority in your life. See, every time someone twists scripture to say something it does not say, or means something it does not mean, they're lying about what God has said and undermining his authority in their lives. 
Church, I want you to get this because it's so important. If you ignore everything else I say today, please tune in right now and hear this. Listen to me. If God, speaking to us through his word, can't outvote our opinion, you don't have a Christian view of Scripture. There should come a point in your regular Bible reading when, when God says to you, Hey, McFly! And there ought to be a point, at some point as you read this, where you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you're like, oh, boy. As you read Scripture, if you, just, if you come to something you don't like and you just chuck it, well, that's, that, that verse is not for me. Hang on a second here. If God can't outvote your opinion, you don't have a Christian view of his book. Like we said last week, this is God-breathed. It's his word. Yes, it is delivered through human authors via a reliable process. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But the simple fact is it comes from one who does not make mistakes. And that means it has authority. And if you deny that, you're creating a whole list of second-order problems for yourself. Again, quoting from Ferguson and Packer, they write, denying biblical infallibility thus exchanges manageable problems in the text. We'll talk about that for unmanageable perplexities in theology and spiritual life. Are there difficulties in understanding the book? Yeah. Are there passages that are hard to understand? Absolutely. Are there places where the translation is really difficult? Oh, is it this word or this word because it makes a difference? Yes. Are there errors? No. But if you assume that there are, well, that's a mistake, that can't be authoritative, then you just created a whole list of problems. Here's what this means for us. When we look at Scripture as a word from God, your creator, and we see it as having authority over us, it enables us to do things we never thought possible. And I want to show you what I mean with a wonderful story uh, about a veteran. Yesterday was Veterans Day. Uh, scripture says, it has authority, right? Scripture says to give honor to those to whom honor is due. If you're a veteran, would you please stand? We want to recognize you and, and thank you for your service if you're a veteran. Thank you for your service to our country. You will all like this story, veterans, you especially. All summer last year, four-year-old Dylan Stitch was afraid to dive off the diving board. He was a good swimmer, but he wouldn't dive. And so Dylan's mom, Marla, said he just had no interest in it ever. He was a good swimmer, but we'd say, hey, do you want to try to dive? No. The answer was always the same, no. He just, it freaked him out. He just didn't want to do it. Enter 95-year-old Daniel Biss. He was in the Air Force during World War II and the Korean War. He knows a thing or two about bravery in the face of fear. So when he sees this neighborhood, neighbor kid at a neighborhood pool party and heard everyone trying to coax him off the diving board, he knew exactly what Dylan needed. At 95 years old, Daniel borrowed a swimsuit and with cane in hand, stepped up to set the example. This great-grandfather hadn't been on a diving board probably in 50 years. And yet he got up on one ready to teach a lesson in courage, which he knew might very well turn into a lesson in first aid. <laughs> Here's a picture. I love this, right? And you can see the people there at the bottom going, uh, is this a bad idea? 
You know, I love the flag too. That's awesome. She's, you'll notice she's holding his cane. He walks out to the edge of the diving board there. And at 95 years old, he dove in to show Dylan it could be done. Wasn't the prettiest dive. Didn't really matter. Because shortly after Daniel took what we all hope is his last dive off the diving board, Dylan took his first. His mom said it was really neat that that's what inspired him to do it. And ever since, Dylan dives with no problem. Here's the point. When you obey the word of God, simply because it is the word of God, you show others it can be done. And that shows them it has authority. When the authority of Scripture rings true in your life, and you live according to what God spells out for you in this book, you show others it can be done. You teach them a lesson. You give them the courage to go, well, maybe I can do that too. The fundamental truth that we stand on is the Bible has authority because it's from God. Which for any skeptical mind naturally raises the question, well, how do we know that what we have here is actually what God said? That's the second part of understanding the inerrancy of Scripture. It's reliably transmitted. It's God's Word, and it's reliably transmitted. We can know for sure that the Bible we hold is a reliable copy of the original. But what is the original? What's it a copy of? Well, let me teach you a new definition of a word you already know, right? In biblical studies, when you see the word autograph, they are, are not talking about getting the signature of Taylor Swift or LeBron James, right? That's not what we're talking about. When you see the word autograph, that it, when applied to the Bible, it means the original copy that the author physically wrote. So it, as you're studying scripture, when you see the word autograph, what they're referring to is the actual piece of parchment, or in some cases, animal skin, that M Moses or, or Isaiah or Paul or Matthew physically wrote on. That term is the autograph, okay? We don't have those. We don't know where they are. Now, um, I'm not sure how they pulled that off. Uh, because, like, again, call Marty McFly, somebody has a time machine, right? Like, how, how do you get a signed copy and, and I don't even know. Um, <laughs> we don't have the original copy. We have copies of that thing. I would argue those works alone, the autograph, are without error. And we know that Scripture has been reliably passed on to it. You can depend on the fact that the Bible you hold in your hand, regardless of translation, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, is an accurate representation of the original. I had you hold on to this for a long time. Would you look with me now at 2 Peter chapter 1? Look at this with me. This is the Apostle Peter writing his second letter, probably fairly near the end of his life. Look at this. He writes, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, now, what's funny is he'll use that exact same phrase in chapter three. <laughs> so there are a couple things in Second Peter that are important. This is the first one. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Let me pause. I, I wanna, I'll read the next verse in a second. 
There's this lie that gets circulated in the world that the reason the people who wrote the Bible, they, they wrote these things down and the early church did these things to gain power and to gain influence. That is the biggest load of hooey I've ever heard in my life. Most of them died for writing this down. Most of them gave their lives because of their testimony. The idea that, that the authors of Scripture wrote this stuff down to somehow gain power and to gain influence in their culture is just a giant load of hogwash. So Peter's saying here that they, it's not their own, they didn't come up with this stuff. They didn't invent it. Look at what he says in verse 21. For prophecy... Again, this is God's word, right? Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's one really significant word there that I want to point out, and it's the word origin. Do you see that in verse 21? Guys, could you go back to that on the screen? Oh, no, we don't have it. Never mind. <laughs> You're like, Where was, why wasn't it on the screen? Because we're preaching a series on the Bible, and I expect you to bring yours. That's why, okay, yeah. So, oh, digitally, whatever, but verse 21 says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will. That word origin is an influence word. The, the, the prophets, what he's saying here is that they weren't trying to influence the message. It was from God. They just reliably transmitted it. They were the mouthpiece. They were God's spokesman, Peter says. And therefore, it has authority. It's not from a human being. This comes from God, and it has authority for that reason. Some people think, like, well, how did that happen? Like, how did God give them this word? How did this all get transmitted to us? Well, there are a couple different um, kind of polarities that exist here. Some people think that the Bible writers were basically like stenographers in court, taking dictation right, getting it down word for word, and God's whispering in their ear, and they're just writing furiously to get it all down, and, and you'll see this talked about and bandied about in popular media. This is often the image that's given, is that they're sitting there in this pillar of light, oh, you know, and they're writing, and like, that's the image. Other people think that God basically gave the authors of the Bible kind of a vague idea, and they just, you know, whatever, they, they wrote down what they thought. I don't think either one of those is the case. The, the first does not account for the differences that we see throughout the Bible. When, when you read different authors, the vocabulary is different. The style is different. And you don't even have to know Greek and Hebrew to pick up on that. You can tell this. When you read John, it reads different than Mark. Mark is like, boom, 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 boom. And John is like, hey, let's sit down and think about this for a second. Right? So, so this idea that they just took manual dictation and they all wrote it down... It just doesn't account for the differences in style. Like, here's the thing. When you read, if I were to hand you a sermon manuscript from three weeks ago, and, and I, I'm one of these guys, I write it out word for word. I try not to need it, but I, I like the discipline of doing that. If I were to hand you my sermon manuscript and you were to read it, you know what you would find out? You will hear my voice in your head. I'm sorry. I've, people have told me this before, like I, one of, in a previous ministry, one, I was telling our elders in an elders meeting about a paper that I wrote in seminary, and he goes, that's kind of interesting, can you give me a copy? Sure. So I gave it to him, and he told me the next Sunday, he's like, I read your paper, and I heard your voice in my head. Sorry. Uh, it's this idea, when, you, when it's the same author all the time, it doesn't matter how you read it, you're hearing their voice. There's a different voice when you read scripture. So this idea that it was manual dictation just doesn't wash. 
But, but the other idea that God just gave them a vague impression and they just kind of did what they wanted to do, that does not take into account the incredible level of coherence that exists in this book. I want you to think about this. This was written by over 40 different authors in three different languages in multiple places in the world over a period of at least 1,500 years. And there's no mistakes. Dude, I don't even remember what I said last week. There's, there's, there's no errors. There's an incredible, unbelievable, why? Because it has the same author. Capital A. I believe that the Holy Spirit placed the ideas and thoughts, and in some cases, probably the exact words, in the hearts and minds of the biblical authors, but their books generally reflect their own style and way of writing, right? In other words, every thought in the Bible, and probably many of the individual phrases, were authored by God himself. And that said, this specific way of expressing certain nuances was up to the individual human author. Like I said, you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to understand that, to see that. Let me state this another way. You can be sure that the Bible you hold accurately records the revelation of God as originally seen and heard by the people to whom it happened. So how did that process occur? How do we have this book now from what they wrote down? How do we know that what we're holding today is an accurate record of everything that, starting with Moses and ending with John, wrote? Well, one significant piece of evidence has to do with the available number of New Testament manuscripts. These are the copies of the original. What we discover is that there are more available manuscripts of the New Testament than any other document from antiquity. In fact, there are enough quotations of the New Testament in the early church fathers, those, those men who wrote from about 100 AD to about 300 AD, give or take, right? We can re if we did not have the New Testament, we could reconstruct it all but 11 verses of quotations from the church fathers. This is unbelievable. This material that was written from 150 to 200 years after the time of Jesus. Not only that, but we have a ton of copies available to us. We've got a very short time span between when the events recorded in the New Testament happened and when they were written down. There's not a long time frame from, that, from when this happened to the first copy that we have, right? The time span is shorter for the New Testament than any other document from antiquity. And there's strong evidence that, that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke were written within 30 years after Jesus' death. The Gospel of John was written before the end of the first century. Let me show you a chart that, that will kind of blow your mind, right? So check this out. So Plato's Tetralogies, written somewhere between 427 and 347 BC, we don't even know, right? Earliest copy we have is 8900. That's 1,200 years we have seven copies of that, all right? The Tacitus, the Roman historian, his annals, written somewhere around A.D. 100, earliest copy we have, 1180. It's a thousand years of gap. We have 20 copies. A lot more of, you know, the, the gap between um, the, when it was written, the Iliad by Homer. Did any of you have to read that in school? We did. I like, it's a good story. I liked it. Um, so, not that my opinion matters. Uh, but, you know, a 500-year gap, we have 643. Look at the New Testament. Written somewhere between 40 and 100 AD, that, that time span, right? 
we, it was, we have the earliest copy we have of the whole thing is 125 AD. It's 25-year gap. We have 24,000, give or take, copies. The evidence is just off the charts for the reliability of the New Testament. So if the autographs of Scripture are inspired, and they are, it's God-breathed, that means there's no mistakes. They're in, therefore inerrant. And I believe that the Bible is without error in its original transmission. In other words, what Moses and David and Isaiah and Matthew and Paul wrote was totally without error. But we don't have those. What we have are copies. And if you'll pardon the Zoolander reference, really, really, really ridiculously accurate copies. We, we know that in the time since the scriptures were written, there have been manuscripts that were difficult to understand. Yes, they may differ slightly from the original. But we also know that nearly, like none of those differences change the meaning of the text. It's like, like you say, well, what, what kind of differences are you talking about? It's the difference um, of like translating it from using the word but or the word instead. It, it doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't leave Jesus in the tomb. Nothing like that exists in, in the whole of this book. We believe that God guided the transmission of his word to make sure that we had a copy without any error of truth or fact. Here's the point. If the ink in this book is reliable and inerrant record of the very words of God, of the God of the universe, then it has authority in our lives. And because I believe that the Bible is inspired... It is authoritative. It has authority over every area of our life and is of greater authority for the believer than any other creed or church tradition or certainly non-Christian worldview. And the same spirit that inspired these words, the ink of this book, lives in you if you're in Christ. The same spirit that spoke that thoughts and ideas and sometimes the exact words into the mind of Moses and David and, and Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, that same spirit lives in you if you're in Christ. And he will help you understand this book and he will help you obey this book. The ink in this story has authority over whatever ink you've used to write your own story. Did you hear me today? God's word has the authority to overwrite any mistaken words in your story because there aren't any in his. Maybe, like King Charles XIV, you've got some stuff written on you that isn't who you are anymore. It's not who you want to be. What I'm telling you today is that the authority of this ink can overwrite any ink you've used in your life. So when you surrender to his authority, he helps you ink a new story. And you've got an opportunity to do that today. We're going to sing a song of invitation, a song of decision. And you may have a, a decision you want to make public. Maybe a decision to follow Jesus, to be baptized. You might want prayer for something. We'll be down front ready to pray with you. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and we're going to sing together about God's authority in our life and the new identity that that gives us. Let's sing.